So I'd like to offer some reflections at this time in regard to what we've been engaged in here as we've been practicing together now for about a day. Sometimes when we look back we might think, whoa, it feels a bit longer than that. Or, Or maybe it's gone past really quickly. There's many different ways we can experience how it is for us here. And in terms of what we've been engaged in, there's lots of aspects of it that we can reflect on and could talk about, and I'll not manage to cover them all this evening, but in one sense as a, as a primary sense of possibility or orientation and direction in the practice is this exploring of what does it mean to be awake here in the midst of our lives, and what does it mean to embody a heart that is open, that is boundless, and at the same time is touched deeply by the circumstances of our world and ourselves? What does it mean to be a fully conscious, connected, caring human being? And one of the themes within this exploration and the way we are being invited together to respond perhaps to that question is engaging in meditation practice as a central element of what we're doing. And this process of training and cultivating the heart and mind. One of the really interesting things about engaging in meditation is that we discover very quickly that this, it seems so intimate part of ourselves, or what we think of as ourselves, this attention, this way that we can engage with and connect with things, it turns out that it's not in our control. That it doesn't just do what we tell it to. If we say, okay, so just be mindful, wakeful, present, it doesn't just do that, despite feeling so central to our experience and perhaps our sense of what it is to be a human being that we attend to, connect with, meet, experience. And yet what we also see as we begin to practice a process of training and developing that capacity is that we can influence it. That over the duration even of one day, relatively small small time or short time in the context of most human lives a day and we can notice already a certain difference given the support and the the care being given to this particular capacity to be attentive and to actually direct our attention we we may start to notice ability to settle a little more deeply or to connect a little more fully or to sustain that attention slightly more at times. At other times we might feel like that's not happening at all. But through our intentionality there is a development, there's a trajectory and this is a remarkable discovery. Not so remarkable, also quite ordinary, but something remarkable it seems. This human capacity of sensitivity and attentiveness can be developed and trained in ways that go beyond what we've already known.
When I come up to the front of the hall in a situation such as this to offer some reflections, I, I like to just take a moment to stop and pause and express my appreciation to the Buddha and to the, the awakened practitioners of all times and all places represented by the images here of the Buddha and Kuan Yin and an embodiment of enlightenment that appears sometimes in a feminine and sometimes in a masculine expression which for me is a rather interesting and remarkable gender fluid expression of awakening and uh, and to just feel grateful for the for the many people who practiced and shared these teachings and brought them through the generations alive to be available I can't imagine how my life would have turned out if I hadn't encountered these teachings. I mean, it would have had to because obviously other people's lives have gone that way. But for myself, it's like, wow, how fortunate, how grateful. I feel for that. And so it's one of my practices just to take a moment in a traditional way to honour that and express that. And likewise at the end of the meditations when I bring my hands together. No one needs, some of you may choose and like to, you don't need to, but for me, this expresses respect and appreciation. It's like, oh, I, I know how challenging it is to do what I, effectively I'm asking you to do here and that you're choosing to do. Wow, there's something I find uplifting and beautiful in this. And so coming into this field of practice, this process of bringing forth of discovering of more fully embodying what is possible for us as a human being everything that we encounter here and elsewhere I would say equally offers us this possibility and just in a simple frame what I want to name is that when the conditions are supportive for a steadying and a deepening and a collecting of the attention which is often what we think we're here to do, which is part of what we're here to do, but not all of it, when the conditions are there for that, there can be a remarkable coming together of heart, mind and body in a steady, calm, clear, bright abiding of attentiveness. And that's something lovely that we may encounter in our journey, and if we practice, we will at times, for sure. Maybe not always on the first day, but maybe just for moments already. There have been such moments where we felt, oh, I'm really here. And we don't have to count them up and measure how many there were or weren't of those. But equally, sometimes that's not what's happening. The conditions aren't necessarily there for that, and we have a reactive or a distracted activity going on in the mind, or we're impacted by, by charged and challenging emotional processes or patterns of reactivity within us. And in these moments, there's also an opportunity offered, which is really to, in turning towards them and acknowledging and not rejecting them, to open our hearts, to expand the capacity of our willingness to include and to care for those experiences we may not previously have been able or perhaps willing to include. Those things that are scary, that are difficult, that are confusing, that don't look or feel good in some way. 
And from this perspective, there's always the possibility for development. What we get to develop here isn't always in our choice or control. And so again and again we have the opportunity as we encounter our experience to see what's possible here. Can I open to this? Can I just let go of what takes my attention away? Can I let be that which I find uncomfortable but that has come to me? Not needing to push it away. And this is really the primary activity of meditation. It's not just giving attention. It's then beginning to handle our reactivity. The demands we make upon our experience and upon ourselves to be this way and not that way. And to see that within that there is actually space for ourselves and our life to abide. And that we start to find some ground in our capacity to include, to attend to, to connect with, to open to, and to care for the full range of our human experience. And this really is the foundation of our capacity equally, to open to and to care for all that we encounter in the world. And some of what we've been exploring and perhaps getting a sense of is that this, this connecting with our experience is not just a sort of a, a mechanical training process, but it's influenced by the care, the kindness that we bring to bear on each moment. And so far as we can start to feel a sense of appreciation for what is offered in each moment which may be, although the experience may be difficult at times, it offers us the opportunity to develop, to grow, to embody more of what is possible for us as human beings. And in this, of course, there are territories we encounter that are not easy for us. And we've talked some about this. I want to just say a little bit more about one or two of these. Particularly in the context of contemplating the intersecting crises of our time that we've touched upon. And as some of you have mentioned, quite naturally, understandably, inevitably, in fact, we, we will feel grief, sorrow, distress. And those Responses are understandable or natural because when we care about something it hurts to see it harmed just as it delights us to see it well whether it be someone else who we love or care about or some place or thing that the very nature of the, the delight we feel in what we love when it is well and when it is near is matched and balanced equally by the painfulness and the tenderness we experience when that which we love is distant, is lost, or is subject to danger and harm. And this is part of what it is to be a human being with a responsive, sensitive heart that feels and that cares. 
So where we may feel that sense of tenderness, to bring kindness to those places in our heart, in ourselves, like, ah, this may not be easy for me, to open my heart here, to feel this. There's something for me that's so important and powerful and remarkable about contemplating how our experience of what we love is bound with both the deepest joy and the greatest sorrow we experience as human beings. And always it's so. And that the fact that we are born and here for a while, not just we as human beings, but all things, all creatures, even this very blue-green orb we call Earth, floating in space as it is, is here for some time, not forever. And to contemplate this, to kind of acknowledge, oh, this is part of what it means to be alive and to care, to take the risk of caring. Of course, it's a much bigger risk if we don't care. And, uh, you know, the Buddha talks about the way that it's not easy for our hearts to be in the world. That we encounter what he talks about as sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. It's like, yeah, we, we see these things, we hear them, we feel them. And he, he talks also about aging, illness and death as things that are hard for us to bear. And it's easy to imagine somehow that it shouldn't be that way. And our culture and our world tends to give a message that suggests that if you do it right, or if we collectively got it right, then no one would ever experience sorrow or sadness or unhappiness, that we'd all just be happy all the time. And that somehow if we're not, that's a mark of our personal failure. It's such an unhelpful and untrue message that we get given around this. And something in the, the Buddha's teaching that all human lives, all life, is touched by that which is hard to bear. Not because we did it wrong, but because it's just the nature of it. There is that which is beautiful, delightful, uplifting, and that which is tender, grievous, painful, sorrowful. And there's no way our life can avoid this. And you might say, well, maybe he hasn't figured out how to do it, but I'm going to. And I wish you, you know, all the best in that endeavour. But let me frame it this way. If in this life you love something or someone, at some point you'll be parted from that something or someone through accident, through choice, through intention, or through death. If we love someone we will, or something, we'll be parted from. And this will be painful. This will be grievous. This will be sorrowful. It can't not be so. And... If you don't love something or someone in this life, that will be painful, will be grievous, will be sorrowful, will hurt. I've thought about this on many occasions. I can't find a third alternative. And I'd be really okay if someone else had one to let me know. Maybe later. But it's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's going to be so, isn't it? And the fact that it is so, therefore, is not some kind of mistake. 
or failure. That this life is both precious and vulnerable, are woven together. That our lives and the lives of that which we love and those which we love is not forever, is part of how and why it is precious. And our sense of what is precious, of what we value, what we care about deeply, is woven into that. Last year, I travelled to Sweden to be with my sister. And she was in her time of dying, having for 18 months since she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, been going through the journey of doing what could be done and in the end having to turn and face the reality that no more could be done. And I was with my mother in the hospital room in Stockholm on the last days of my sister's life. She's my younger sister. Not so old, but not so young. In her early 50s as she was. And there was something really painful and tender to be there and something really beautiful to be there. And we sat with her as she was breathing, just as we might have been paying attention to our own breath here today. With my sister, my mum and I were paying attention to her breath. And I've often talked about this, but until that day, just over a year ago, I'd never been there for that moment where because we don't know when the last breath will come. None of us know, for ourselves or another. And the in-breath comes in, slowly, and the out-breath goes out. Then you wonder, is that it? Is she here? Is she gone? And a moment later, it comes in again. And then it goes out. And then, at some point, after one of the breaths goes out and we're waiting and we're waiting and it's like we look at each other it's not coming in is it that was the last one it doesn't come with a sign that says that's the moment and there's something so tender and mysterious what happened there the outbreath just went out and then where is she gone she's not there but her body still is. And the, you know, the, the tenderness, the, the grief, the, of to be just be with one human being in that situation that of course has been with part of my whole life. And in this world, if we look around in our own lives and with people we're close to, or perhaps further afield to the situation of others, in times of death or times of, of distress, of difficulty, of hunger, of loneliness, of illness, of oppression, of destruction. There can be so much grief, sometimes we feel, I can't, I can't handle that, I can't open to that. And 
And with grief, it's really important to understand that it connects. It's such a fundamental human experience. It connects. Whenever we feel grief, we are in touch with all the grief that has come, all the loss that has come in some way in our lives or in the lives of our communities. It's remarkable in that way. And it's why what we want more than anything else is to be with others who share that in that time of grief because we need to hold it together. We can't hold our grief ourselves. We're not designed. That's not how our systems are because it's something to do with our sharedness and our connection that we feel that grief and therefore we need to know our connection in order to hold it. So one of the things that we've invited here is that sense of just acknowledging the sharedness of this territory and the different ways that we do of what we are concerned with regard to. But also acknowledging what we are grateful for to see that that's part of what allows it to be held. And this is part of what is, I think, so needed and that we can practice here. With the experience itself of overwhelm, which I, I touched on, just want to say a little bit more about that. What happens with overwhelm is we feel like we could be annihilated by the intensity of the experience. And it refers quite directly to what for everyone as infants we will have experienced when we're not yet able to regulate the intensity of our emotional charge and we need an adult to help us do that. And no matter how well attuned our parents or carers were, if we were fortunate, and not all of us were fortunate to have a reasonably well attuned person there for us, there are times when that attunement and regulation isn't available. And it's essentially for an infant as if being overwhelmed feels like it's like the whole sort of mind, a sense of psychic circuitry just is blown, like the fuse blows. And it's effectively annihilation because an infant doesn't know they're coming back from this. This is a kind of a simplified version of how I understand what's here. But what it is is that we carry with us a sense of fear of our emotional charge being more than we can handle. And of course, sometimes we do need to be really careful with that. But what it speaks to is the, the importance of, of drawing on a larger field of support. And when and if, in this context where we're talking about these things, if overwhelm arises, what's useful to notice is this, the sense is that it's a lot and it's too much and more than I can handle. And to give your attention directly to this rather than to the things that seem to be overwhelming. The fact of overwhelm as an experience becomes that which we need to notice. And what it generally needs to be given is space and ground. Ground comes through feeling the earth beneath our feet and our connection to others. And space comes from reversing the habitual tendency that we have to tighten and contract when threatened, which is an evolutionary development based on what happened for sort of single-celled 
organisms, the first forms of life floating in the soup of um, early existence, that basically they had to expand and open the membrane to take in nutrients. But if they encountered something toxic, they had to tighten or they die. And our body is 10 billion of those cells that under threat contract. And we notice the tendency to tighten. And we've been invited to practice breathing out, relaxing, opening. Because when there's energy and we tighten, it compresses it and it amplifies the pressure. When we give it space, when we ask, how much does this room, does this need? Can I give it the space it needs? The same amount of energy in a greater space. It's much less pressure. In enough space, there's ultimately no pressure. And so part of what we, in connecting with each other, in connecting with the, the natural world, the wider world, we're actually creating a field of greater space and holding that is proportionate to the intensity and the amount of energy that's there in that experience. And so as I think maybe someone referred to, imagining the world in which we might be moved to interact with each other, at least some of the time on the basis of sharing. What do you care about? And what are you grateful for? These kinds of conversations are really a foundation for a different kind of meeting with ourselves and each other. Rather than what do I like and what's wrong with the world, it's very different. Or even how do I think it should be? We may have a vision for that and it's something I want to return to. But initially just meeting, okay, this is how it is. But how do I find a ground that is shared? There's the inner practice of opening and then the outer practice of connecting to others to see what's possible here. To remember what we're grateful for equally as we attend to what we're concerned about. What I also want to speak to a little is the, the completely understandable response that we may feel in regard to seeing oppression or harm to human and non-human beings, to, to life and all its expressions. We may feel anger. It's so understandable. And we see what appears to be the intentional harming or destruction of others of ecology we can also of course be angry with ourselves for our own participation or our failure to address in ways we would wish and it's completely understandable but it's, it's not so helpful and just within that there's a couple of pieces to kind of unpack a little bit 
one which I find kind of amusing I'm not sure the moment is right for telling it as a joke as I sometimes do but apparently in London in a place where all the uh, traffic would grind to a halt twice a day and people would sit in long lines of cars packed together going almost nowhere very slowly there was someone had graffitied on the overpass that they were going through or underneath it said you are not in a traffic jam you are the traffic jam and I think it's really interesting to kind of just see that we kind of see how problems are somehow out there being done to me and to acknowledge that in many cases we are somehow involved with them and that's not to then suggest we turn the blame towards ourselves but to understand that we're woven together in the context and the circumstances of this life And we might want to, in that context, you know, consider our use of a vehicle or in other contexts, what our contribution to it is. But there's a larger context also. And in terms of what I'm wanting to sort of offer as a reflection here, notice the tendency to judge and blame, whether we judge and blame others or judge and blame ourselves. It has the effect, even if it's understandable and it might feel like it's an entirely appropriate thing to do, where someone seems to be either intentionally or caring or carelessly causing harm, or where we ourselves may have done so. To actually reflect more deeply on what goes on here. I also just want to name that what we call anger can be distinguished from what might be described as outrage. Outrage is a natural and appropriate and compassionate response to want to address harm. Anger tends to take the form of blaming, judging and attacking the person or persons associated with or believed to be causing the harm. So compassion concerns the action and bringing to an end of the destructive harmful action. The tendency for our heart to close to whoever seems to be causing it, whether another or ourselves, is something we can really look at here. And I think it's really important to also acknowledge that it's so painful when our hearts close in this way. It's so painful when we judge, when we hate those who seem understandable and reasonable as it may seem to be. 20 years ago, I was invited by the, the Sangha, the, the meditation community in Israel, where I was teaching regularly at the time, to join a peace walk, even though it wasn't called a peace walk, because you couldn't call it a peace walk without that sounding political within the, the culture and the, the context of the time. During the, the second intifada in, the, um, in 2002, where there was a series of escalating 
interactions in which in one side the Israeli defense force with military weapons were were encountering, engaging and at times causing the death through the use of their weaponry of, of Palestinian people and Palestinian people were using homemade bombs blowing up buses and there was also the loss of life amongst the Israeli community and there was fear and terror and anger and each at the other and this group decided to do a walk through the territories between the different towns and villages for a week out in the space and asked me to join and it was an incredible and powerful experience to, to walk in this context and a lot could be said but what I wanted to share here which I found remarkable and striking was at one point we were having a dialogue amongst different people in the march and it was envisioned as a shared march between uh, Israeli Jewish people and Palestinian Arab people although organized as it was by a Israeli Jewish community of meditators it was mostly from that community the participants come but some others also remarkably and beautifully joined and at one point we had this conversation and I I felt moved to ask because the striking thing was that way more people die in car accidents than were being killed by the acts of violence and yet people weren't afraid of getting in their cars and driving around but they were terrified to go into a situation where they might be endangered by bombs or bullets and what came and it was it was incredibly striking to me it was actually when we explored it it was like actually the reason why that was much more horrifying and terrifying was because it led to them being locked into hatred that actually if this is done to me intentionally I must hate that person or that community and that was such a deeply painful experience and I think it speaks to what happens for us how our hearts are so impacted by what we are subject to or what we're simply aware of others being subject to And the importance here of a place of forgiveness that understands what it is to be a human being in this world. Forgiveness doesn't mean we don't say no to what is harmful, that we don't take action to protect and to heal, protect against harm and to heal the harm that's already been taken place. Forgiveness is about understanding that in the end all of us have caused harm to others and that when we do so it comes from our own pain and this is something that I've considered, questioned and explored on many occasions with myself and for myself to be completely confident of the truth of it in my own life I can see that when I've done things that caused harm to others and I have in small and sometimes not so small ways. I've been participant in things that have caused great harm as someone who as a sort of a middle-aged, educated 
heterosexual, cisgender man who passes as white and has immense privilege. I participate in systems of oppression, even though I would wish not to. And to actually just stop and see what underlies the ways we cause harm in this world. For me it's very clear that it's my own need, my own pain, my own limitation. And I'm confident that this is true for us all. This is how it is. My little sister who died last year, I was mean to her when I was a kid. It's so painful to contemplate it. And I've had opportunity to say sorry. I was fortunate in that way, but when I remember it, I, I, I'm both, it's so painful. Think, oh gosh, I was mean to her, really, at times. But I can also see how much pain I was in that led to that. I don't think we're so different. And so there's this scenario that I, I find useful to contemplate here. And it's a sort of an imaginary scenario that you might just like to imagine as I'm speaking. So imagine you're going for a walk in the woods. And it's sort of a nice day and you're enjoying yourself and you see a small puppy near a tree. And being someone who likes puppies, and if you don't like puppies it could be a cat or some other creature that you did like, but for me the story is with a puppy. And seeing this little puppy there and liking puppies, you reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand. It hurts. And just imagine what your first thoughts or responses are. I know mine. It would be like, you dog, I'll teach you a lesson. You know, bad dog. Um, and imagine just as you're having that reaction of blame, of judgment, of wish to punish or teach them a lesson, you see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps that they put in the woods to catch creatures sometimes. And what happens to your response in that moment? Because what I notice happens is immediately I'm not angry. My hand is still hurting. But I don't want to harm this creature. I see immediately it's hurt me. In a certain way it's crying out for help. And it's in pain and a fear. And actually what I want to do is rescue it. To get its foot out of those jaws. Maybe I want to go and have a talk to whoever put those traps in the woods. Because it's really clear when we see the source of the pain. All my life I struggled with a certain part of how my sister was. And I could never quite make sense of why with all my practice I couldn't quite open my heart to it. All the years I've worked with these things. And two years ago, so just before she got her cancer diagnosis, she was also diagnosed as autistic. And when I found out, and it made sense to me now, I was like, oh, that wasn't something that she had any choice about how she was. It was just how she was. She wasn't doing that to make my life difficult or my friends go, that's a bit weird. What was amazing was that my heart could open because I understood 
And until, until then I hadn't. It's like when I could see where her behaviour came from. Suddenly it was okay. And I think this is true for us all. But sometimes we can't see. So imagine the scenario again if you're walking in the woods, having forgotten about the last puppy, it was a while ago now, and you're walking in the woods and there's a puppy and you like puppies so you reach out to stroke it and it bites your hand. And you look at it and you see that it's standing shoulder deep in leaves. So you can't see its legs or its feet. What would it mean what would it take in that moment to understand that its foot is in a trap? Even though one can't see it. It seems to me that what that would require is understanding it's not the nature of puppies to want to bite or hurt human beings or others unless they're in pain or afraid or desperate. And it's similarly the truth of human beings. It's not the nature of these tender, caring beings that we are to cause harm. Except that insofar as we have been hurt in ways that are perhaps deep and grievous. To understand the behaviour of those who cause harm is born of pain, just as our harm that we have caused has been born of our own pain. We still wish and are called to address the harmful behaviour, but we can do so with an open heart. To recognise the harm is in the action, not ultimately in the actor. The Buddha's teachings point us to the way in which our lives can be driven by craving, by greed, by hatred, by aversion, and by confusion and delusion. And that so far as our lives are driven by these, we both experience pain and suffering, and we cause it too. Seeking to address these roots of craving and aversion as they're expressed in forms of selfish greed, and the hatred that either dismisses others or just disregards them, doesn't give them place, space, value. These are both arise from a misunderstanding, a delusion and a confusion that we are somehow separate from what is around us, separate from others, separate from the world. And because we are not separate, when we act as if we are, it actually hurts us. And when we act as if we're not, and expressions of kindness and sharing and generosity, simply expressions of knowing that, we find it deeply uplifting, deeply touching and nourishing. Small acts of kindness are not all that are asked of us, small acts of generosity, but each and every one of them makes a difference. 
even a simple thought of well-wishing for others or a simple offering of something small to another changes the fabric of the world just a little and yet it's also true that the ocean is filled by drops of water just one at a time fall in the sky gather in the rivers and streams and flow into that vast body So we learn and practice paying attention because paying attention allows us to make choices that we don't otherwise have, to choose to follow the movements of reactivity, of craving and aversion that become greed, selfishness, that become hatred and destruction, to begin to contain and to learn to handle those responses. to come back into the moment of, of kindness, of care that those responses emerge from and trying to get what I need and protect me from what I feel threatened by. Even craving and aversion come from an attempt to care for ourselves. Greed and hatred likewise in a much more complex and distorted form. But the roots can still be found in that simple attempt to care. But what we see is that the field of caring has become narrowed, restricted, constricted for so many of us. And that our work and our practice is to expand it, to extend it. Just as in meditation we, we learn to include more and more. So too in life, to ask our hearts to open, to expand, to extend to include more and more. This, it seems to me, is what our world and our life is calling for. Because whatever we offer into this world comes back to us. Because we're not separate from each other or anything else. We're affected by everything. We affect everything. This has become perhaps more apparent to us. And you know, again, amongst the many different things we could pick up to look at that, plastic, we throw it away. But there's no away for it to go to. Because it's all just here. And it shows up back here in the very cells of our body. And the cells of our children having found its way into the bodies of water and the bodies of fish to the bodies of humans. There's no way that we can throw something to. And every action likewise. This is at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. Whatever we put out into the world both affects the world but also comes to affect us. So every single moment of kindness is something offered into the world that actually 
heals our heart, even if the world seems not obviously affected by it. Because we've aligned ourselves with something true that is deeper than the appearance of separateness. And we've lived that truth more and more fully by our willingness to do so. So in this time we have in our practice and our exploration, we're both learning to meet what is here and the simplicity of the meditative attentiveness and the vastness of our, our world and its complex interacting challenges and crises. And as we use the word crises, we can acknowledge there is danger in this. The Chinese character for crises, as you probably know, is made up of the two characters of, cri of danger and opportunity. Crisis has within it the possibility of waking us up and the possibility that we may not. And we don't know what will be possible or where this will go. We don't know what our own journey will look like. But what I am confident of is that what we bring to it and what we give to it will make a difference. Just as we can see how our own heart and mind are affected by how we hold, handle and respond to them. And so too our world is not separate from this. Though the effects that we might notice in that larger field may be less obvious. When we honour all of life, including this life that we are, when we honour all things with care, all beings, all living things, including this one, we honour the truth of the preciousness that we recognise in what we are and in each other and all things. Spiritual teachings point to the emptiness of boundaries of the boundedness. That isn't to say there isn't difference and particularity and specific locations and experiences that each of us have that are our own. But they're woven together into something vaster. And something in us knows this, even if our education and our culture has not supported or reflected this. Something in this, something in us knows this. And I think it's power, it's at the core of what brings us into a situation like this. There are no ultimate boundaries in what is most true. And within that 
the caring that's inherent in what we are quite naturally becomes boundless. And it's for this that we're invited to practice and to discover and see what is possible for us. To know the boundless heart amidst the world. As a blessed gift and equally a blessed offering. Let's just sit together quietly for a few moments to finish. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to know deeply the profound care and caring that abides in the very heart of what it is that we are, that is blessed and boundless, that touches all that is with tender, kindly well-wishing. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings and the well-being of all that lives and all that is. <coughs> 